welcome to the Healthcare IT Today interview series. We feel lucky to be able to talk to so many smart, passionate, and knowledgeable people in healthcare. Now, we're taking our favorite interviews and sharing them with you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy perspectives on the world of health IT. Hey everyone, I'm John Lynn, the founder and chief editor at Healthcare IT Today. We're excited to bring you another in our series of interviews with top leaders in health IT. And today's guest is someone that I think most of our community knows quite well. It's Mickey Tripathi. He's national coordinator for health IT at HHS. Welcome, Mickey. Thanks, John. Really delighted to be here. Yeah, glad to have you back on the program, although I think it's the first time we've had you since you uh, took over as national coordinator, so excited to have this discussion, but uh, for those that don't know about you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, yeah, I think it was just before maybe uh, I had made the switch, so okay. I've been uh, in this role since um, since uh, President Biden came in. Um, I'm, I was a day one Day one, hour one uh, um, uh, start. Uh, so I started like one minute after noon on January twentieth, twenty twenty one, as as the U.S. Constitution prescribes. Um, and uh, and prior to that, I've uh, I was working at Arcadia um, as uh, uh, for you know roughly a year. Um, and then prior to that, I was uh, I ran an organization, a nonprofit organization called the Massachusetts Health Collaborative. So for about twenty years, I've been involved in health IT, electronic health records. Um, and the policy issues related to that, technical as well as the policy issues related to that. Yeah, absolutely. They should go check out our previous interview to hear some of that history. It was fun to go back and uh, kind of relive some of that, uh, the early EHR dates, as a, you know, and uh, oh, yeah, we got to set up an internet. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Anyway, go check out that video. Hard but, to yeah, even think... put yourself back to those times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do we want to go back to that? <laughs> Not really. Anyway, uh, so, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts because you're so deep into health IT, to interoperability, to the policies, regulations, et cetera. How would you describe the state of electronic health information sharing and kind of interoperability as it stands today? Um, uh, I guess I would describe it as, uh, you know, about to make great leaps and bounds forward um, that we're just getting started, but we're starting to approach, you know, sort of the hockey stick mm -hmm. of you know, of uh, of data exchange in all of the different ways that, you know, that data can be exchanged in ways that'll start to, you know, sort of more closely mimic the kinds of information sharing that's, you know, happening um, in other sectors. And, you know, the reason I say that is because, you know, we're now at the point where, you know, 97% of hospitals and 90% of ambulatory providers have well-functioning, you know, we can talk about whether it's well-functioning or not, but certified <laughs> electronic health record systems that have the capability of capturing data and, um, you know, and and uh, uh, communicating that data. Um, and, you know, and that's a real threshold moment for us that, you know, it's a lot of hard work to build that foundation and to lay it down. Um, but, you know, but now we're at the point that we're starting to be able to, you know, sort of take advantage of that in a good way. Um, mostly, um, and uh, and be able to start to think about what are the kinds of things that we want to be able to do with that, um, which I think is you know the really exciting part of where we are today, and um, and why I'm really excited about being in this role at this particular time. Yeah, from an interoperability perspective, any EHR is more effective than paper. I think, <laughs> you know, right, right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, and I think you know one of the things that uh, that we just have to recognize is. You know, we were trying to do a lot with interoperability, you know, uh, me included back in, you know, we're building health information exchanges and all of that. Um, and uh, and just recognizing that, you know, most providers didn't have electronic health records 
then. So, you know, that's a, that's a big barrier to be, <laughs> to having interoperability if, you know, most people actually don't have electronic data sources. So that's why I say, you know, we're in a very different position um, today. And you know, now we have that opportunity to really reframe the way we're thinking about things to say, well, now that we're digitally native, how do we, you know, sort of recreate, uh, you know, sort of the world um, that, you know, in a way that's hopefully starts to get less, be less and less, you know, kind of tethered in the, you know, sort of the mental models of, and the real workflow models and business processes of paper, bricks and mortar to things that, you know, really are more digitally native. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to think about the shift at ONC. There must be a big mindset shift because in the beginning, it was like, how do we dispense this $36 billion of electronic health record stimulus money? Now, you know, like you said, it, it's, it's, I don't know if it's done, but you know, like at least it's implemented to your, to your point. But, you know, and then I think the other big thing that, you, you know, probably is on your mind is the 21st Century Cures Act. Where do you see that act, you know, making an impact for good on, on patients and clinicians? Yeah, I think it's huge. Um, I think it's really uh, complementary um, uh, to, you know, to all the work that, you know, that was done under the High Tech Act, which is, as you point out, was, you know, $36 billion of, um, of, in of incentives. Um uh, to providers to adopt electronic health records. ONCs, we weren't in charge of $36 billion, which we had been, um, but uh, we weren't. Um, but we, you know, we supported CMS, obviously, and, and we continue to today. So in some ways, the work isn't that different. Um, it's, you know, sort of uh, got a different focus um, uh, to the extent that, you know, then it was about electronic health records, getting electronic health records into place and now it's much more about the use of electronic health records um, for, you know, for uh, for the public interest and for, you know, for what's good for um, for our country. And so in some ways, you know, the nature of our work kind of moves up market and we kind of follow where the market is. And, uh, you know, it's first about electronic health records, getting them in place. And now it's about saying, what are we going to do with the electronic health records? And that's what 21st Century Cures Act is focused on. Um, so when you think about the, you know, the different pieces of that, the information blocking regulations, which are about you know the behavior um, of people who uh, are the custodians of, of data, um, the the approach to uh, you know having access to information without special effort was you know the exact words that were used in the 21st Century Cures Act, and then finally you know network and network level interoperability as uh, you know reflected in TEFCA, all of those pieces that you know are about saying all right, let's make the assumption now everyone has electronic health records. Now, what are we going to do with them, and how do we ensure that those electronic health records are used for the higher level purposes that you know that were a part of the vision of the High Tech Act, and you know are now sort of more firmly instantiated in the 21st Century Cures Act? Mm -hmm. Do you think healthcare organizations have kind of woken up to to the information blocking and the other pieces of the Cures Act? I I feel like there's kind of a change in mindset that that they kind of saying, yeah, well, patients need this, otherwise, like you know, that, that could be a problem for me. Although I, I think there's some that are dragging their feet a little. How do you see it? Are, is, is it really going to create this sea change in, in the healthcare organizations? Or, you know, do, is it going to be a process? You know, how, what perspective do you have on that? Yeah, I, I think that, um, that uh, it's an added impetus um, and perhaps a backstop to changes that were already taking place in healthcare. I think that there was, you know, growing, um, uh, you know, growing opening up of you know of exchange practices 
um, that was already happening. So, you know, the 21st Century Cures Act was passed in 2016, uh, a long time ago. Um, and already, I think we were starting to see nationwide networks form. We were starting to see a lot more sharing of information um, that was already happening, you know, partly because of things that were driven by things like value-based care that was, you know, and, and you know, that hasn't, you know, taken over the market, but, you know, there was enough there that there were enough organizations who were, you know, who were uh, participating in it and were seeing that interoperability was uh, a business need um, as they were entering, you know, CMS, uh, you know, MSSP contracts and, you know, other kinds of things, looking at the CMMI models that were coming out. And then, of course, on the commercial side, the commercial plans, follow, you know, sort of following suit and having their own, um, you know, interoperability requirements related to value-based purchasing. So I think that that was happening. I think that increasingly that, Information sharing is increasingly seen as a standard of care, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, among a larger and larger fraction of, of providers um, that, you know, my daughter's a, a physician and I think, you know, it's quite natural for her to think I'm going to get the best information I can and I'm going to be sending information <laughs> out to other parties and I'm not going to, no reason for me to be proprietary about this stuff. That's the way, you know, it's the mindset of, you know, of, of the transparency that we've seen in almost every other sector of the, uh, of the economy and generally, generationally. I think that there is a whole younger generation that's entering the picture that has a different view of, you know, of this. Um, I think the pandemic also is, you know, certainly a driver um, of understanding the need for, you know, for information sharing. So I think all of those are things that were propelling the market in that direction. But, you know, but certainly I think 21st Century Cures Act, as I said, is like an added impetus, perhaps a catalyst because you start to instantiate it in regulation and people start to pay more attention to it. Um, and it's a little bit of a backstop for those who, you know, as you point out, are more recalcitrant, let's say, <laughs> about, you know, about, uh, you know, sort of understanding the, you know, the direction of all of this and the need to do it that allows us to be able to say, hey, everyone needs to do this. And this is a floor that all of you need to, you know, to be able to, um, uh, to be able to uh, get to, um, and, you know, hopefully do a whole bunch more on top of that. So I think all of those things, I think it was a trend that was already happened, but, but certainly the 21st Century Cures Act, um, you know, adds impetus to it and, and helps to catalyze it. Yeah, it's interesting how we all want all the information, but we don't want to share. Like, you know, yet we right. want to benefit from having it. So yeah. it's it a change. I mean, you know, I'll, I mean, I'll say that I, you know, in my experience, and this is just you know my experience, um, that a lot of that um, was, you know, there's certainly, I mean, there's certainly, uh, you know, bad actors who want to data hoard for competitive and proprietary reasons. I'm not saying that that doesn't exist, but in my experience, there's a lot of it is, is about priorities and is about, um, you know, um, uh, uh, provider organizations and others who have a ton on their plate. And in the, you know, list of priorities that they have, it's, it's real work to share information, right? You have to change your compliance policies. You've got to deal with your compliance officer. You got to, you know, work with the interoperability mechanisms of building those capabilities to make that information available. And then you have to work with all your end users and workflows to sort of say, no, do it this way. Don't fax it. You know, here are the circumstances in which you do it. Um, you know, kind of doing all of that is really hard work. And, you know, at any given time, you know, you talk to a CIO in a hospital, it's like, well, they're, you know, I got cybersecurity, I've got, you know, quality of care, I got safety issues, I got all of these things that, you know, that are just higher on the priority list. And so, at least in my experience, um, you know, again, there were certainly um, and still are organizations that are doing it uh, for their own competitive reasons, but there are a lot of provider organizations and other organizations for whom it just wasn't a priority given all the things on their plate. 
And now one of the things that we're saying with the 21st Century Cures Act and the and the succeeding uh, you know rules is you need to move it up the priority list. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what you need to do. You know, if 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 it's not a high enough priority for you, we'll help you move that up the priority list to make it a priority. Yeah, those uh, penalties or other incentives, uh, you know, can can help with that. That's a really interesting way to look at it. Are, are there things or pieces of the 21st Century Cures Act that, you know, are the, you know, what would you say is the most misunderstood part uh, of the Cures Act? Uh, no, that's a great question. Um, so, uh, you know, I think certainly the, um, uh, I mean, there were different dimensions to it. So uh, I guess one of the, you know, the uh, misunderstood pieces is that, um, you know, that, that with the wave of a wand, all of this information will now be free. Um, you know, you may have seen that. You know, October on October sixth, when you know, when the when the full scope of what was required to be made available went into effect on October sixth of this year. You know, a number of publications called the Data Liberation Day, um, and you know, which is great. I mean, I you know, I was very happy with that. I you know, don't get me wrong. Um, but I think that you know that uh, I think what's you know, but what's probably um, not as well understood is how complex that is. That it, you know that if you go into a, a and and it, you know so if you go into a into a hospital setting in, into a hospital setting and I'm not talking about you know Johns Hopkins or Mass General or Mayo Clinic, go to a community hospital sure. and you'll see that they've got their electronic health record, um, you know Meditech, Cerner, you know CSPI or Evident, I think they're called now, um, you know Epic, whatever it is, and then they've got a whole bunch of other ancillary systems, and yeah. each of them has a different constellation of systems. Based on you know their their history and their legacy and which departments they have and which specialty they support and what their you know patient population is and all of that and the complexity of you know our saying uh, starting on October sixth all of that information needs to be made available and shareable in machine readable format that's a, it's really that's really complex um, it's complex on a number of different dimensions one is you know we ourselves meaning the federal government through the High Tech Act and everything, we kind of train providers to rely a lot on their EHR vendors, right? Mm -hmm. Where we basically said, you'll get these incentives and don't worry, ONC is gonna certify the EHR for you so that you actually have some confidence that the EHR will actually allow you to do the things that will allow you to get your incentive dollars. Mm -hmm. And the vendors, I think, did a lot of work in actually educating providers, right? They would provide a lot of education to providers because they, you know, they have the staff to follow the regulations closely. So they were able to you know, sort of work with the providers to say, no, here's what this rule means and here's how it's implemented and, you know, all of that. One of the challenges with, with you know, it's a, I mean, it's a good problem to have is that with 21st Century Cures Act, it says it's not about, it's not exclusively about what's in an EHR. It's actually all this other stuff as I was describing. So, your natural tendency, if you're a CIO of a hospital, let's say, might be to say, let me talk to Cerner, let me talk to Epic, let me talk to my EHR vendor who has been my partner in this and has helped inform me, and they can help to say, here's how it works in our EHR, but by the way, you have these other 23 systems that we don't even touch. We're not even, <laughs> we don't even, we, we barely know what those systems are, and that's going to be your responsibility, provider, to figure out how to get, you know, all those diagnostic systems and that anesthesiology system and that ED system and that chemo dosing system that may be 10 years old and, you know, and, and can barely can spit out a fax line and, you know, nothing else or something, you know, whatever it is. I think that's, that's a real complexity that we all just need to appreciate. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, and, and so I think that there's, there, there's that part of it. I think the other part is that um, is a little bit, and this is a little bit more maybe on the provider side 
is not understanding that we built exclusions into the rules for good reasons. Um, that you know that we recognize that on the one hand, you know there is a requirement to share the information, and we believe that people need to flip their default mode from mm -hmm. "I'm not going to share information until you give me a good reason to." To "I'm not going to stop the sharing of information unless I have a good reason." Good reason. But yeah, but we, but we listed and laid out those good reasons and those because those are legitimate reasons. If you know if your system. That other that you know that weird esoteric diagnostic system, for example, that absolutely has patient da patient data that patients have a right to be able to get. If that's like a fifteen year old system that literally you cannot get an electronic feed out of, it is okay to say I can't do that. It is infeasible. There is an infeasibility exception for that reason. Um, there are there's a harm exception if you as a provider feel like my, my patient will actually be harmed if I release that information um, directly to them. I never would have done it in the paper world. So, you know, so I shouldn't be expected to do it in, a, in, a, in an electronic world. Those are all things that, you know, that are accounted for in the exclusions. And I think um, providers, and maybe that's, you know, partly our fault. Um, I think providers don't have a good enough understanding that those are there um, to, you know, to help them um, navigate through this process. Yeah, I think you triggered a little trauma of the uh, old medical manager Unix box under the HIM desk uh, when I implemented an EHR uh, 16, 17 years ago. Right, right, right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and hopefully there's no more under the desk at HIM. I think we've learned that, but uh, <laughs> everyone has those old systems, you know, I mean, which we have to for, you know, legal reasons retaining. Yep. Very yep. interesting. You know, you, you may have already answered this, so but I, maybe I'd love to hear if there's you know something else as well. Are there other areas of the Cures Act that you think are going to be the hardest for healthcare organizations to implement? You know, what you said makes sense having that many systems. I think your number of twenty three is low. It's hundreds, sometimes thousands, yep. which is just astounding. And we know that because whenever there's a merger and acquisition, they have to deal with it. <laughs> so then they 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 they're like, oh wait, we have how many systems? So I, yeah, that was obviously a great example. Are there other areas that you think are going to be hard for healthcare organizations and they should maybe put some added focus on yeah i think that um you know certainly everything we were just talking about from a technical perspective is that you know that's challenging taking an inventory of all of that stuff figuring out how you're going to surface the data in each of these things like just patient matching across all those systems and linking right that in and of itself is a challenge yeah. when you talk to organizations i think you know um aaron Meary, who's uh you know the cio of a, of a hospital system in florida has talked about this at the high tech act how much time they've devoted and they are continuing to vote to just that problem where is our ehi which is you know well and so first off maybe i should step back for a second defining what is ehi you know, <laughs> what we've tried to do is be helpful to providers um to say EHI is just the electronic portion of the HIPAA designated record set, which you since 1990 or well since 2000, since the you know the HIPAA privacy rule um, and the HIPAA security rules came out, you were required to maintain that designated record set. That's what your medical records department um, gives to a patient when a patient comes in uh, through a right of access and says, "I want all my record records." If any patient who did that, you would give them the designated record set, um, the data that's in there. And so we thought. All right, well, let's build the rule on that and just say, well, it's the electronic piece of that that is EHI. Well, it turns out providers, you know, still don't often don't have a good operational definition of the designated record set. And therefore, figuring out the electronic portion isn't, you know, quite as straightforward as, as one might imagine. And the fact that HIPAA says that that is a local determination. So Mayo Clinic has a different definition of the designated record set, let's say, than Mass General Hospital. 
then Springfield Hospital, then, you know, Bay State Hospital. So you've got, you know, that inherent complexity, which is just figuring out in my organization, what is EHI? And then the technical part that we've already talked about. I think the other part is um, that, you know, that, that this is intended to be a real change in mindset. And a change in mindset means that you've got to change your policies. And that means that, you know, you've got to look at all your policy documents. You've got to work with your compliance officers. You've got to work with your HIPAA lawyers um, and your, you know, your information blocking lawyers um, to sort of say, what about our policies? Do we actually need to change? How do we work on that policy change? How does that translate into all the forms we have? How does that change into the training we give to the providers um, at, at the front end? How do we make sure that we're communicating properly to patients um, so that, you know, we may have the policy, but all it takes is a provider or, you know, someone in the medical records department to say the wrong thing to a patient to say, oh, no, you can't do that. Or, oh, you know, we're not going to give that to you for 30 days, or you need to pay, you know, for all of those things. All it would take is that one kind of mistake, and that could lead to an information blocking complaint. Um, and, you know, a valid one from the extent that that was the patient experience but it may be that the organization's policy actually isn't that. It's just that front that frontline person didn't know because they've had 20 years of experience doing it a particular way. Um, and so, if you don't have that training all the way down to the you know to the frontline people, I think that that's you know going to be a real big part of it. And I think that that's underappreciated how much work that is. And you know, to people who say, "Wow, that's a lot of work," it's like, well, read the 21st Century Cures Act. That is the law of the land. <laughs> if you, you know, if you read that and don't come away thinking, "Wow." The Congress and the President really want things to change. Then I think you know you're not doing a good reading of it because that was really the subtext of it. Well, I think all the HIM professionals out there are cheering you on because uh, they've been trying for years to get that designated record set uh, <laughs> set Fine, up. Right, yeah. Nobody cared, you know. <laughs> not all some right. organizations did a good job, but they they were fighting a, a tough battle, and now, that, now they have a little more teeth behind it. So I think right. that's good. <laughs> we can um, we'll call it the HIM Department Empowerment Rule. <laughs> you, you should. Uh, they they would love it, and they could be a help to this. I think you know I forget about that. Right. Uh, they often know where the records are because they're doing the release of information, et cetera. So I think right. it makes sense. Right. Yeah. I will say, you know, one just one added thing to that in, in terms of the complexity. You know, we talk a lot to provider organizations. Um and um and you know and, there, and there's you know certainly a lot of challenges that you know frontline providers are facing. And just the point I was making about training, one of the things that you know that I feel like I've heard is when I talk to a lot of providers and hear about what they're talking about and the challenges they face, the first thing that comes to mind is, wow, your organization did not prepare you for this. You know, <laughs> here you are in a hospital system, you're the front line delivering care and sharing information and in the HR, and your hospital did not train you. They did not tell you about what was going on here. And you know, so how much of this is about the policy and how much of it is really the failure of the organization that didn't empower the physicians who are at the front line to have the best available information so that they could respond appropriately and have the uh, enough lead time to be able to do what they were, you know, what they needed to do. So in some sense, you know, they, the physicians are the ones who got caught in the middle um, in many cases, uh, at least, you know, from things that I've heard. Well, the doctors read their emails so well, you know, but uh, <laughs> no, it's a marketing task. Doctors though. get a lot of emails. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, so let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, you know, let's talk about everyone's favorite uh, new, new words, Tefka and QHINs. What should people be keeping an eye on when it comes to Tefka and, and QHINs? And I'll admit, when I first saw Tefka, I was like, who cares? There's no teeth. <laughs> but then I saw QHINs and I'm like, oh, that's a big change. So to talk to people about what should they be watching to understand what's happening with Tefka and QHINs? Yep, absolutely. So, um, there's been, you know, there's been a lot of work over a relatively short period of time. When we um, when we came in in 2021, um, the uh, you know there'd been there'd been some work, but it was you know kind of hidden a lot from the public, and there hadn't been a whole lot of progress, um, you know, over the years since the uh, since the passage of the 21st Century Cures Act and in 2016, and you know release of you know sort of a first version that um, uh, that you know that that had you know, kind of stalled a little bit. Um, so we looked really hard at it to first, you know, ask ourselves, is this needed? Um, you know, is this something that's going to offer value? Um, and if not, then, you know, maybe we should, you know, say, you know what, the best use of taxpayer dollars here is to not move forward or to significantly pare down, you know, what the approach is. But we looked really hard at it and said, there's, there's really tremendous value that could be offered here that to get the, um, you know, where we are with network interoperability to the next level. And the next level requires public-private partnership. That up until now, almost all the activity has been private sector activity. Um, and it's been great, right? I was very much a part of it. I think, as you know, from the, you know, probably from the, from the previous, uh, um, uh, you know, interview that we did, uh, I think we probably talked a lot about that. Um, that, you know, that what care quality and Commonwealth and eHealth Exchange and number of state um, HIEs have done um, has, you know, has been tremendous. And it's got, gotten us, you know, to a lot of interoperability among providers. Certainly, you know, certainly a lot more to do, but, you know, but I think that given that it was a private sector activity that required collaboration and voluntary participation and people investing their own money um, to do this, I think that, you know, that, that, that we've seen a lot of progress there. But as we look to say, well, what's the next level of things that we want to be able to do? is not just provider to provider exchange for treatment purposes and better implementation. That's where you start to say, that's where TEFCA and the public piece of this can start to come to um, come to the fore and help the private sector, you know, sort of move this up to the next levels where the private sector can't on its own. So things, back to your question, things to, things to look for. Um, we are in the process now of, um, and by we, I mean the Sequoia Project, who is our nonprofit partner in this. So it is a true public-private relationship where the where ONC and the Department of Health and Human Services defines kind of the big policy box that says here is the you know the policy goals and here is the you know the the things that we want to accomplish from a public interest perspective and from a federal government perspective, and then allows operational leeway to the um, to the RCE to be able to do the implementation of that. But all you know, with that ongoing guidance um, and ongoing oversight from you know from ONC and the Department of Health and Human Services um, to ensure that you know that we're not you know delegating away a real um, uh, government responsibility here, which is to make sure that we have network network um, responsive um, network network interoperability in the public interest. And so the things to so now we've um, the applications have been out for um, uh, you know for uh, uh, prospective QHINs qualified networks. Who want to apply to become designated as QHINs? Um, that that happened in September. There are now twelve organizations that have submitted letters, letters of intent expressing their intent to um, apply. There are a number of organizations who've actually submitted their their applications, their complete applications. Um, and uh, and now uh, the Sequoia Project are, uh, um, is reviewing those. And 
Um, and we are going to be having an event. So the next thing to look for is that we will be having an event in early 2023 that the Department of Health and Human Services will be announcing the, um, uh, sorry, waving someone, um, <laughs> the Department of Health and Human Services uh, will be announcing the first um, QHINs or prospective QHINs that have made it through the first big step, which is that their applications have been approved meaning they've met the eligibility requirements because there is a pretty high bar that we're placing on this because we recognize this is like nationally critically critical infrastructure um, that we're talking about here. And for anyone who doesn't believe that, just think about the pandemic mm -hmm. and think about what, what we want to be able to accomplish from an interoperability perspective. And then you start to say, okay, yes, this is nationally critically um, nationally critical um, infrastructure. So they will have made it through that process and they will be signing the common agreement, which is the common contract, the common rules of uh, rules of the road that they are agreeing to. So that event will be in early 2023. Um, as I said, it will be the Department of Health and Human Services, as well as the Sequoia Project, announcing those first QHINs that have gotten through that very first, you know, the first but very important stage. And then that will set the, um, you know, set the timeline for them to uh, go live within 12 months, which is what they're required to do. And so they'll go through testing, and then they become fully designated because um, they have to meet you know, certain requirements related to their technical capabilities and, um, and their capacity. And then they will be designated as, uh, as, as QHINs. So next thing to look for is that announcement and then look for the implementation. And, and the other thing I should add is there are going to be um, pilots, fire um, exchange pilots that are going on in parallel because one of the things that you know, the, the TEPCA didn't include when we inherited it was it was completely silent on fire. Um, which you know to us was a glaring gap. So we you know very specifically included fire-based exchange as a part of what TEPCO will support. Um, and so we're um, organizing now, and we'll be launching fire pilots in early 2023 as well. And those fire pilots will then you know sort of iron out the wrinkles in fire-based exchange with an eye towards saying that fire will become a part of the full production um, uh, capabilities of TEPCO-based exchange in 2024. And if I'm a provider organization, just to circle back on kind of the previous comments, yep. I'm probably going to rely on my EHR vendor or my HIE vendor for the QHIN exchange, right? Sure. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think for the most part, absolutely. I mean, they're they're allowed to do it in any way, but you know, we've gotten tremendous um, participation um, and interest from the EHR vendors supporting their customers, and you know, and for most EHR vendors, that's because they anticipate that their customers are going to be demanding it. Um, that's, you know, that's why they're doing it. Um, so if you look at the organizations that have already publicly announced that they intend to become QHINs, um, some of them are EHR vendors like NextGen, like Epic. Um, and then a number of them like the Commonwealth Health Alliance, which is publicly announced that they are going to be applying. They are, you know, they are made up of largely of EHR vendors, um, you know, Meditech and Athena Health and Clinical Works and, um, you know, a number of them and, and provider organizations. So, you know, they certainly um, are directly participating and have expressed a lot of interest. And again, I think, you know, we live in a market economy, so they're doing it because they think that their customers are going to be demanding it of them. Yep, absolutely. So as we kind of wrap up here, I'd love to hear what is your overarching vision for ONC, you know, as the, as the leader of ONC, you know, you know, what's your vision and how does all of this stuff we've talked about kind of fit into that vision? Yeah, the, I mean, you know, the overall vision to me is for us to continue uh, to be that organization that helps the market and helps our federal agency partners um, keep driving toward that open architecture um, help IT ecosystem that, you know, that we all want. Um, and, you know, in some ways to put ourselves out of a job 
which is to say that people stop thinking about technology, <laughs> right? When I when I buy a phone, oh, let's not. This is my government government issued phone. When I buy a phone with my own money, <laughs> um, I don't think about right. I think about how what the what are the functions and how does it work for me and what's the price. I don't think about what is the technology underlying this. And I don't worry about, you know, the fact that this is a Verizon phone. I won't be able to talk to, uh, you know, the person who's on AT&T. So, you know, the goal and the ongoing goal, and maybe, maybe it's, you know, sort of something that we asymptotically approach, right? That, that, that perfection, the platonic ideal of interoperability, because, you know, no, no industry has perfect interoperability, as we know. Um, but, you know, that we continue to be that organization that people look to for um, help with, figuring out these problems that, you know, that we are, you know, um, a facilitating organization that's a problem solving organization, helping people um, solve the problems related to health IT and interoperability um, so that they can better accomplish their missions. Um, and that we are an enabler of that, um, both, as I said, with our market collaborators, as well as, you know, with our federal agency partners. Awesome. Well, Mickey, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and be back on the program again. I always love uh, learning from you and uh, hearing what, what's happening at ONC. So thanks so much. And thanks, everyone, for watching and listening. If you want to find more great healthcare IT content like this, be sure to check it out at healthcareittoday.com or search for Healthcare IT Today on your favorite podcast application. Thanks, Mickey. Great. Thank you, John. Enjoyed it.